Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. I'm going to tell you a story. Um, I have three kids. Uh, Yonatan just turned eight. Shira is going to be five in about a month. And Nomi is one and a half for the sort of purposes of understanding the story. <laughs> yes, she's very squishy. So uh, we live in the Chicago area. And it's been unseasonably warm the last little while. And so we've been doing what we can do on nice days. When I pick them up for, from school, we stop at a park that's kind of equidistant between our house and school. And it's great, you know, they get to have a chance to run around in the sunshine, it's great. Um, and on this particular day, we get to the park, Sheer immediately sort of dashes off and starts running around in circles, like he does. That's pretty much, <laughs> that's pretty much what he does. Uh, I get Nomi out of the stroller and she starts toddling around on her chubby little legs. And Yonatan doesn't look so good. I sort of looked at him and I said, you know, Tani, are you okay? He sits down on the bench. Bench. He's quiet for a minute. There's a beat. He says, I, I, I don't feel well. And then there's another beat. And another beat. And then he says, I have to poop. It's like, okay, we are going! <laughs> we are going now. Sheer, come on, we're going. And I'm like, you know, kind of wrangling Nomi and trying to get her back into the stroller, and she doesn't want to go, and she's screaming, and I said, Sheer, come on, we're going. And he says, I'm hungry. I said, I don't care. We are going. And I finally get Nomi in the stroller, and we start hurtling out of the park. And it's like, Sheer, come on. We get to this gas station, which is the closest place to the park. From, from, the, from where we are. So this will be where we can go. I say to the gas station manager, hi, we need to use your restroom right now. Can we use your restroom? And he says, no, I'm sorry. And I said, what do you mean you're sorry? We need your restroom. And he says, it's, it's closed right now. And I'm like, not going to leave it at that. I am pushy Jewish mom. <laughs> you use the bathroom today. Where did you go? He sort of rolled his eyes. Fine, fine. It's just being painted. It's over there. Fine. So, you know, we start running over. I leave the two little kids with the painters, sort of get Yonatan into the loo. He gets situated. His, uh, his stomach is out. We get there just in the nick of time. <laughs> go back to the kids. Uh, Yonatan's washing up. And Sheer starts again with, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. We just need to get home, right? I now have a sick kid. Nomi is now pretty much half past nap time. I need to pee myself. I'm just going to wait. We just need to get home. But I know my particular middle child well enough to know that this is not going to go very smoothly if we don't get him fed. Fine, let's just go. So there's a bakery right there. And I'm usually mean, stingy mom when it comes to sugar. They get treats, but not every day. It's certainly not an after-school snack, but we just need to get home. So we go into the bakery. I say, fine, take whatever you want. He takes a meringue. Great, I pay for it. 
we're going, yay, we get to go home. And Shearer now suddenly feels like he has won the lottery, right? He thought he was getting an apple. And instead he gets like a cookie. It's a meringue. He's skipping along. He takes his first bite of his meringue. You know what happened, right? Brittle little cookie. Crumbles onto the sidewalk. My, listen, my standards are pretty low at this point. <laughs> Very low. But that's, that's the line, right? We have already gotten to the line. We have crossed it. Um, I'm not going to let him eat the cookie from the sidewalk. So the minute I inform him of this fact that he has just lost his cookie, he's like, he's done. He's on strike. He sits down on the sidewalk. He starts screaming. He is not going anywhere. And I'm like, I still have a sick older child. I still have a baby who needs her nap and who is getting increasingly fussy and fetchy about that. I still need to pee. And there's this screaming thing, you know, obstacle to us reaching the goal that <laughs> is in the way. Martin Buber, the 20th century philosopher, talks about two kinds of relationships. I it and I thou. I it relationships are transactional, right? The, even if you have a lovely connection, a lovely time chatting with the waitress at the West restaurant, she is still functionally the object who is bringing you your dinner. Right? What is at the heart of that relationship is that you want your dinner to come on time, you want it to be hot, you want to make sure the thing you're allergic to is not on the plate. Right? It's, uh, she's doing a thing for you. And the cab driver is the object that is bringing you to the airport. Even if you each tell each other your whole life stories on the way, he is the object getting you where you need to go. I-thou relationships, on the other hand, have no preset boundaries. It's about all of you in all of your messiness and your pain and your longing and your gifts and your hopes and your fears and your laughter and your joy. It's about all of you in all of the layers that you are connecting with all of another person. And there's nothing circumscribing what's going to happen as those, that meeting unfolds however it's going to. According to Buber, I vow is also the model of our relationships for God, with God. As a human being and as a parent, I forget all the time to see other people and to see my children as thou. I forget it. And then we remember, and they forget, and they remember, and they forget. Um, this is part of being a person. And so, you know, in this moment, I've got this kid, and he's sitting on the sidewalk, and he's on strike. And I remember that from his point of view, he had this need, and he had articulated the need, and it still wasn't his turn. He still didn't get his have his need met. And then finally, he got to have his need met, and it was like he got a, you know, not just a need met, but a want, and it's great. And then just as quickly, it all got taken away. And so he was feeling frustrated, and he was feeling powerless, and he decided to assert control in the one way he felt he had available in that moment. And so he was down. The minute I remembered that, I, I don't even remember what I said, but I was able to find the right words to coax him up off the sidewalk and to be able to get all of us home so that, among other things, I could get him fed in a way that would meet his actual need. We forget. We remember. Yonatan was probably about a year and a half when the question popped into my head, um, kind of out of nowhere. I wondered how many theologians throughout history have been mothers? And I knew the, the answer right away, right? Not very many. <laughs> the, almost none in my tradition. 
um, almost none in the Jewish tradition, and you know maybe there are a handful of uh, women in Catholicism, for example, who wrote deep theology, but they were mostly monastics, right? Women who had a room of their own and the time and the space to be doing a certain kind of a thinking and a certain kind of cultural production. There are a lot of socioeconomic historical reasons why this is the case, but the fact of the matter is the people who have been in the trenches of childcare the people who have been getting up in the middle of the night with a teething person and managing tantrums and explaining to the kid that they have to eat whatever's on their plate and hearing the funny stories and having the tickles and the connection and all of that have not been constructing our ideas about what God is, about who God is, what prayer is, what spirituality is and can be. And the more I started to think about this, the more it was sort of surprising. Because for me, becoming a mother was one of the fastest, most intense transformations I'd ever undergone. Right? I, it's like I had entered this room, and there was suddenly all of these things I had to learn. Right? Like what happens when all of the patience is used up, and it doesn't matter. You just have to quickly grow more right away. You just have to go find some. Right? Or, or that that way that my heart was sort of burst open in this sort of overflow of love and vulnerability that I hadn't expected, or all of the ways that I felt powerful over this tiny person's life, or powerless in terms of what really might happen to them. Right? All of the ways that I was thinking about my identity, my body, a lot of things changed within the first very short time that I was a parent. And it seems strange to me that there was um, not necessarily a bridge from this rich, vast storehouse over here of deep teachings in our tradition uh, to talk directly to that. You know, Martin Buber wasn't writing uh, about little kids when he was writing I Thou, but it's a really helpful lens. So I started thinking, and, and ultimately the book that became Nurture the Wow was animated by three questions. So I'm going to share those questions with you now, and then I'll talk a little bit about each of them, and then we'll open this up for discussion. So the first question is, what can the tradition offer parents who are in the trenches of small, with small children? Um, so what, you know, I thou, as it turns out, is a great way of figuring out how to look at something when you've got a kid who's sitting on the sidewalk who's not going anywhere. There are a lot of other ways, too, and we'll talk about that in a second. What can parents offer the tradition? And how can parenting be a legitimate spiritual practice in its own right? Another way, besides Boober, another sort of lens that the tradition can offer parents of small children, besides all of the <laughs> talking about the ego and talking about the messiness and talking about, I mean, our tradition has a lot to say about how to deal with frustrating feelings and what happens when you feel them rising up which, as it turns out, is really, really helpful when you're raising kids. You know, there are a lot of great things. And the fact of the matter is, the guys who were writing the books weren't doing the work. I really believe that any person of any gender who is doing the work, the changing the diapers and making the lunches and sitting with the homework doing and all of that is transformed in this way. But we still need to build this bridge between the riches of the tradition and the, the lived experience of life with small kids. Um, so... For example, walking down the street with my kids can sometimes take a really, really long time. Because it's like, we're trying to go somewhere, and it's like, look, Mommy, I found a stick! It's an amazing stick! It's a laser beam! It's a magic wand! Oh, there's a fire truck! Did you see the fire truck? Look, there are ants! Oh my god, did you see the ants? And, you know, and when I'm 
not paying attention. It's like, fine, fine, come on, we have to go. Yes, I see the ants. But Abraham Joshua Heschel talks about radical amazement, right? This feeling of wow, of wonder when you experience the world. And for Heschel, this is the gateway, or this is one gateway, one doorway to spirituality, to an encounter with the divine. And a lot of times when we talk about radical amazement in sort of Jewish culture, people sort of think about the that moment in the forest where everything's big and leafy and beautiful, or that moment, you know, at the edge of the ocean where you say, oh, I am so small, the world is so big. But children are master teachers of radical amazement. They move through the entire world with what uh, Zen teachers call beginner's mind. Right? They see everything fresh and new. And, you know, when we take the moment to sort of stop and look at the ants, like when was the last time you stopped and looked at a pile of ants? It's actually really incredible. You know, it's something special. I mean, just even as I'm talking, sort of pull up some time recently when you felt that wonder. And when we let ourselves, we can have that radical amazement along with our children, and we can remember that it actually takes as about the same time to sort of stop and look at the ants and let the magic and mystery of these living beings sort of enter our consciousness and really sort of penetrate us, as it does to have the fight about how we have to drop the stick and it's time to go because we're going to be late. Like, it takes roughly the same amount of time, and we get to make choices all the time about what kinds of experiences we want to have. And Heschel, great, great rabbi, 20th century theologian, um, was a father, but he never talked about radical amazement in little kids. But that doesn't mean we can't. That doesn't mean that this isn't one of the tools in the, in the storehouse that's available for us. And so too the hard stuff, and so too the exhausting stuff, and the waking up in the middle of the night stuff, and the having our very primal buttons getting pushed stuff. I mean, it's all uh, ooky, gross body stuff. And there are all sorts of things in our tradition that are available for us that are, are opportunities to help our experiences of parenting be deeper and more nuanced, help us to be more present in the moment and more connected, right? more aware of ourselves, more connected to the kids that we're trying to raise, more connected to the sacred and our sense of interconnectedness with everything. Uh, so all we need to do is build a bridge from, from the great stuff that, that people have been writing and thinking about for centuries and centuries and bring it into the lived experience of parenting. And so that's one thing that Nurture is trying to do. The other thing that Nurture is trying to do, or the number two out of three, is to ask, what does it mean if we take this rich set of experiences that parents are having and we let that influence how we think and talk about Judaism, about spirituality, about Torah, about prayer, about what it means to be a person in the world yearning for the transcendent. Not long after Yonatan was born, well, a lot of stories that start not long after Yonatan was born because those first years changed so much so quickly, I started looking to Jewish law for an answer to a pretty simple legal question. So the, the Amidah is the central part of the Jewish liturgy. We say it three times a day, and you're supposed to be saying it standing and silent, and the tradition, Jewish law, says that you're not supposed to stop even if a snake is crawling up your leg, even if a king who could order you to have you executed decides that 
he's offended because you didn't say hi, it doesn't matter, you don't stop, you just keep going. I had a pretty, I was already a rabbi by the time I had Yonatan, so I was like, I was many, many years into a serious prayer practice. I'm like, okay, so what do you do if you're in the middle of the Amidah and either your kid needs something or you're in a communal situation and your kid is making a fuss and they're disturbing other people's prayer, then what do you do? I went looking and I went looking. And it's like, and it wasn't here, and it wasn't here, and it wasn't here, and it wasn't here. There's a, a bunch of the sort of first obvious places. There's just nothing to be found. And then finally, I found a, a 19th century commentator who said, if you're in the middle of this part of the liturgy, and your kid is making a fuss, you should gesture to your kid, without using words, that they should stop. Oh! <laughs> Like, it was so obvious that these guys had never been anywhere <laughs> near children while they were trying to pray. Whereas for me, this was a perpetual issue. You know, and just coming with a different set of lived experiences, I, I had bumped straight into one of the blind spots of the tradition. So the Talmud is, um, it's, is the sort of cornerstone, foundation texts of Jewish law. And it's big, right? If you study one double-sided page every single day, you'll go through the whole thing in seven years. <laughs> There's a lot of it. And it's mostly, it's like, you know, rabbis going for, back and forth about how to understand what the limits and boundaries of Jewish law should be. And they tell stories. And then they tell a couple jokes. And they talk about some song they heard. And then they're like, what were we talking about? Oh, right. And then they sort of wander back to the argument they were having. It's very nonlinear. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. There's an entire sixth of it. One whole order of it uh, is tractates related to women. So there's stuff about marriage. There's stuff about divorce, there's stuff about vows, uh, sort of a whole bunch of things. Stuff about adultery. There is no single Masachet Yeladim, no single tractate devoted to children. Kids come up sometimes, right? I mean, in asides about inheritance law or talking about who's going to pay for the wet nurse, if we can afford a wet nurse. You know, the stuff about the Passover Seder, there's, kids are involved, and so we talk about kids for a minute there. But there's like... Nothing about what do you do if your two-year-old is about to knock over the Sabbath lamp, because it was fire, right? Then how do you navigate that, right? Or, or what do you call that, that heart-melting feeling when chubby little hands wrap themselves around your neck? There, there isn't. The rabbis are swapping stories. They tell stories about the private parts. They tell very adult jokes. And yet... They don't talk about that thing their, their eight-year-old said at the dinner table the other night. Right? There's this silence in regards to this whole profound, transformative aspect of human experience. And so I think we need to be building a bridge not only from the tradition into the lived experience of life with little kids, the crazy making and the boring, but also to take the wisdom that parents have and to let that impact how we think about prayer how we think about God, how we think about spirituality, what the possibilities and limits are. Right? I mean, you know, for me, I, I reconnected with the concept of spontaneous prayer. I should say connected for the first time in my life, really, after I became a parent because there was this sense of this other thing. If I'd wanted to make the time to do the sort of, you know, and I do still have a regular prayer practice and it holds me and everything, but there was just there was something else that it wasn't speaking to all of the, the mushiness and the flow that my life had become.
And it took me a while to give myself permission to let my prayers become my lullabies and my lullabies to become my prayers and to let my understanding of what prayer is and can be be a little more open and a little more fluid. And I don't think that's about the, the logistics of life with small kids. Again, I could make the time, but it's about who I was becoming in doing this work, in being with these tiny, transformative, insane people with really bad table manners <laughs> that had somehow ended up in my house. Um, you know, I was different, and I discovered that I needed to be open to other kinds of forms of connecting to the transcendent, to correspondingly. And I think if we can let the Torah that parents have to teach the tradition be part of the Torah that we're constantly receiving, so ways of thinking about the tradition, that it's, it's constantly growing, it's constantly becoming um, refashioned, remade, received anew, and I think this is part of the, these voices and these experiences and these ways of thinking and talking about what the sacred is and can be is, um, is, is so far it's been missing for a long time. And I think we're just starting to see what happens if we open up those doors and let the traffic not only move in this direction, but in this direction as well. So that's one and two. And then the third sort of main question that animates Nurture the Wow is how can spiritual practice be, how can parenting be a legitimate spiritual practice in its own right? So if we define spiritual practice as a thing you do on a regular basis, and if you do it with the right lens, the right set of intentions, it transforms who you are, it transforms your relationships, it transforms how you understand yourself in the world, and it transforms how you connect to the sacred, the transcendent, God, whatever language works for you, then parenting, I think, can be. I mean, we talk about spiritual practice. We talk about prayer. We talk about meditation. We talk about long woods, walks in the woods. We talk about running is my spiritual practice, right? Writing in my journal every morning is a spiritual practice. Making art is a spiritual practice. It's a thing you do all the time, and if you put the right lens on, it changes you. And so I think if we can let ourselves go deep enough into our parenting to trust ourselves that if we go down deep, far enough into this place of love, of desperation, of boredom, right? To not be, there's a moment, like reading The Very Hungry Caterpillar for the nine millionth time in the last hour or sweeping up the peas from the floor. Like we, we, we run from this feeling of boredom, right? We're not supposed to feel it. It's not supposed to happen. We check our phones, something else, more input, right? But if we can let our, trust ourselves to go into the boredom, go into the really messy, complicated feelings we have about our kids on hard days, right? If we let ourselves go into the love, it will take us everywhere we need to go. And we need to trust that if we're able to enter that space, you know, enter our reluctance to play with our kids because it's actually not fun for us, or feelings of complexity about this thing or that thing, or whatever your issue is, like, to really be able to face it, it will open up doors and other doors and other doors. Um, so Maimonides, uh, the great uh, 12th century sage, philosopher, teacher, physician, smart guy, my dead medieval boyfriend, has a teaching that I, that I come back to a lot. So I'd like to, this is the, the first 
uh, piece on the source sheet. What is the way to love and be in awe of God? How do you love God? So then he says, whenever a person contemplates the great wonders of God's works and creations and sees that they are a product of a wisdom that has no bounds or limits, you'll immediately love and laud and glorify God with an immense passion to know the great name, right? So when you contemplate the great wonders of the works and creations, which you think is this like radical amazement, right? God, you see the woods. You realize how amazing the woods are. You realize that things are, are fantastic. You want to sort of have this hallelujah come out of you. And when one thinks about these matters, one immediately feels a great intimidation and fear. And one will know that one is a small and insignificant creation. Right? Like, oh, the sea is so big, the forest is so big, I'm just this tiny person. Like, maybe our kids aren't bit players in the play starring me. Maybe I'm a bit player in a much, much larger drama. And then, my manager brings some quotes, kind of goes on for a little bit. Bearing these things in mind, Maimonides continues, I shall explain important concepts of the Creator's work so that they will be an opening to understand and love God. As the sages said regarding love, through this you will know the one who spoke and created the universe. How do you know God? As the sages said regarding love, through this you will know the one who spoke and created the universe. How do you know God? Through love. Through this, you will know the one who spoke and created the universe. If we go deep down into the love that we have for the people in our lives, particularly, I, I read this as a parent thinking about my kids, if we let ourselves go down deep enough, right? Suddenly we're not in the forest. A radical amazement and sense of humility isn't because the sea is really cool. It's not because the forest is great, though those things are true, but maybe... That's that moment of looking at somebody tiny and vulnerable and exquisite and saying, oh, you, you exist. Like that love is the thing that's going to open you up. And that love is going to be the thing that makes you humble and aware of the bigness of everything. When you trust yourself to go bravely into that love, to go down deep into the bottom of that love that we have, for everyone in our lives, but especially our kids, I think, we find a doorway and that that's the opening to know God. So I want to bless us all with bravery and the willingness to do the actually really hard work of parenting as a spiritual practice. Right? Because when we do it, when we go down deep, we're going to find all sorts of thorny things that we had thought we had stuffed to the side that we weren't going to really worry about so much. Right? If we're willing to face with integrity everything that's waiting for us, there are going to be some things we're going to have to get through. But that's also, not the only, but one really powerful doorway to the holy. So I want to bless you all with bravery. I want to bless you all with wisdom. I want to bless you all with love. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybatemidrash.org. Thank you so much. And now back to the learning.
Questions, comments, thoughts, love letters, advice? Nothing? Come on. I just talked to you for I don't even know how long. Yeah. Hi. So I, when I was writing the book, I tried to do my best to talk to all kinds of parents of all kinds of families um, in all kinds of situations and all kinds of experiences. And I can't say I did a remotely comprehensive or even um, acceptable level job, <laughs> but I tried. Um, I talked to some parents who have special needs kids. I do not, so I, I can't speak to that from personal experience. Um, and. You know, obviously I don't have any magical one-size-fits-all response, but the work any which way is about being present, right? Trying to bring all of you fully into connection and being able to see all of the kid in front of you and to be able to see them in all of their beautiful vowness and to be able to love them for exactly who they are. Um, and... There are different kinds of challenges for parents with special needs. And so, you know, for example, in um, the community, it, it, it is a passage where I'm talking about being in community and parenting in community. I, you know, uh, someone I know who is a single mom parenting a special needs kid talked about what's uh, challenging about being in community when her kid can't necessarily be in community as easily as would be ideal. Um, and also the ways that the community holds her. And, and you know, lifts her up in all sorts of different ways. And it's not necessarily the ways that would be, that you would assume when you think about, you know, this topic broadly. But, you know, it's going to look like something different. Um, I think, obviously, in some ways, the hard parts are harder. Um, in some ways, the beautiful parts are more beautiful, maybe. Um, again, I'm not speaking from personal experience, so it's hard to spout off too much. Um, but, yeah, the work of, of trying to figure out how to get what you need as a parent, and to fully see the kid in front of you is, is the work. Um, and this is, by the way, I should say, Nurture the Wow is not a parenting book. Like, I have no idea if you should cry it out, or if you should, you know, do baby-led weaning, or whatever. Like, we, my family, we're making it up. <laughs> as we go, everybody should make it up. My general parenting philosophy is if you love them, probably they'll turn out okay, I hope. Um, maybe set aside some money for therapy if you can, <laughs> just in case, um, if that's an option. Um, so I, don't, I have no idea about how to raise children who are whatever, resilient, independent, not spoiled. I, um, I hope my kids turn out okay. Um, I, but I'm talking, my, what I have to say is about the parents' experience, about the adult experience of being with these unbelievably cute, wonderful, squishy, you know, growing, curious, challenging little people, sticky, um, and what does it mean for us, and what does it do for us, and what does, what happens to us 
when we try to get on the floor and play with our kid and discover that for some reason all we want to do is check our phone. Like, what's going on in that moment? And how can that be an opportunity for us to open up something that might be closed? So, and you know, I do believe that the more we can engage our children as thou and do the work to find ourselves, which means there has to be the work of, of the I, as well as the, the work of the seeking out the thou, right? The giving over yourself completely and not having any self left over isn't going to get you I thou either. Um, but when we have the I and we're able to reach out and, and really touch the thou and have our children feel seen, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure that's going to take us anywhere we need to go. I have no idea if it will make children more obedient because I don't have obedient children, <laughs> particularly. Um, but I hope they feel seen. Jewish world is constantly developing new rituals, for sure. Um, the advent of the feminist movement and then it showing up <laughs> probably a couple, minutes, a couple years later in the Jewish world um, was profound. I mean, Jews have always been inventing new rituals to, um, to meet whatever the need of the moment is. I, you know, 16th century Sfat, which is sort of the time of the Kabbalists, like they, they invented stuff, they like added stuff to the liturgy. They're like, oh, it's the New Year to the Trees, let's have a Seder, like the Passover Seder. And, you know, we'll drink different kinds of wine and it'll be all symbolic and groovy. Like, they made stuff up. Um, drawing on, you know, traditional and kind of universal symbolic tropes, like that's how you make ritual that works. Um, and there's been a lot of, of, you know, there are various periods in Jewish history that have sort of more of an explosion of creativity. And the Jewish world, since the late 60s, has been busy <laughs> on that brand. And so, first of all, there are lots of um, coming-of-age rituals in the tradition, right? We have rituals to welcome a new baby into the community. Um, there's a traditional ritual around cutting, uh, a, traditionally a boy's 
hair at age three. Um, some parents have adopted that to you know, figure out how it works for children of different genders and different gender identities. And you know, there are a lot of different ways to think about this. And obviously a puberty ritual, bar bat mitzvah. Um, so a lot of those moments have been marked. And there's been a huge, huge outpouring of creativity around new expressions and new things to mark and what would be a Jewish way to mark potty training and what would be a Jewish way to, <coughs> that people are doing that work. Um, ritualwell.org, R-I-T-U-A-L, ritual and then well, as in well you draw water from, which ritualwell.org is an amazing database with tons of stuff and somebody wrote a poem and somebody created a liturgy and tons of stuff there if you're looking for sort of concrete what is the way I can mark potty training kind of things. Um, and in terms of the identity formation, I don't, you know, I don't have anything um, pithy to say about that. I personally, I mean, there's, there's a midrash, a traditional teaching that when God gave the Torah at Sinai, God translated it into 70 languages so that all the nations could hear it. So uh, pretty sure the original rabbis didn't mean it literally this way, but how I, as a 21st century pluralist, choose to read that text is that God gave the Torah in Hebrew, and God gave the Bhagavad Gita in Sanskrit, and God gave the New Testament in Greek, and, 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 um, and that there are a lot of different paths to having a full encounter with the holy, um, and that they're each, uh, you know, a complete set. Um, that if you go do this liturgical and ritual and the marking of the calendar year, in this way, it'll take you everywhere you need to go. Um, you know, I, I, I am sure you guys are figuring out what you need to do for your family. Um, interfaithfamily.com is an amazing refer, uh, resource if you don't know it. They probably have more intelligent things to say than I do. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you have a small child and you're late for a thing. Okay. <laughs> then you get like extra late points. to keep my mouth shut about the prospect of dismantling public education, but I have a lot of feelings about it. Um, <laughs> namely, that I don't think we should. Um, <clears throat> so the, the policy level, uh, you know, I, I feel like is not relevant to this conversation. And if you want me to you know, <laughs> feel, have feelings in your general direction over dinner, I can, but I bet you don't. Um, <laughs> but um, I mean, the, the question about how to give a kid a Jewish education today is definitely complicated. I mean, the economics are real. And a lot of day schools provide financial aid, and is it enough, and does it make sense? And for some people, they can make it work, and for some people, they can't. And people make different choices based on what's right for their family. Um, the question I would sort of throw back at you is what 
what do you want your children to have Jewishly? What what is the experiences? What are the learnings by the time they're eighteen? What do you want? Um, what do you want them to own in terms of their Jewish knowledge and Jewish identity? And what are a few different ways you could get them there? And day school is is one way, and for and it may be the right way for you, and it might be not the right way for someone else, or maybe it's not the right way for you, and it is the right way for somebody else. But maybe make a list of like different ways you could get to where vision where you want your kid to be and what you want them to know, and then figure out how to get them there. Um, and maybe it's public school and Jewish camp, and you hire a tutor to do you know, Torah learning with them once a week. I mean, yeah, they're just, there are lots of different ways that people can get wherever there is. Um, and there's not one right answer. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's my offering to you, is to, is to really think about um, what you want them to grow in. And the other thing I would offer is that um, the Kutzker Rebbe, who was a Hasidic Rebbe who was um, famously very grumpy um, in great ways, uh, once said, if you force your kids to study Torah, then they will force their children to study Torah. If you study Torah yourself, then your kid will come sit down and study beside you. And so, you know, I think there are some parents who want their kids to have a certain kind of competency and a certain relationship to Shabbat or the holidays or what or the texts, but aren't interested in integrating it into their own lives. Um, and so I would ask, I, not knowing you guys, not knowing anything about you, you know, like, like what are the things that you are and aren't doing at home and what are the choices you are and aren't making and what would it look like to, in what ways are you inviting your kid to sit down and learn with you and in, in what ways are you not and in what ways would that open up something? Several things. First of all, you just busted me on that. Like, you do sit, and your kid does sit and study Torah beside you, and that's awesome. Um, that's awesome. Um, so that makes me really happy. Um, I, you know, again, I, I am not an expert on parenting. And, I, and the other thing I want to say is that uh, when we worry too much about outcome, we turn our kids into it. Right? We turn our kids into objects. Like, how do I create this sticky little object to be an obedient object that cleans its room and will get into Harvard? Right? Is really different than, than coming down and looking at this human being in the eyes and saying, who are you? And what do you need? Um, and I think when we do that, most of the questions about what should I do kind of sort themselves out. Speaking for myself and speaking from friends, who have you know, also raised their kids in a multiplicity of Jewish worlds. The answer for that, and again, <laughs> now having given you this whole thing about how I don't have any answers, I'm going to tell you at least you know, my non-official advice. 
um, is that if you're clear with your kid about what you're doing and why, then they'll, I mean, kids are smart. You give them more credit than, uh, you know, you say we're in this community that we go to, you know, here are the customs and here are the, and, you know, at your school, there's a way of thinking about it that's different. And then they're going to grow up with a rich appreciation of Jewish pluralism, and that's amazing. And they'll figure out where they, they fit Jewishly, but probably they'll feel like, having grown up seeing a lot of different faces of the Jewish world, they'll, they'll grow up knowing that something in there is, is, is the one that they're going to own. Or maybe a bunch of them. Maybe they'll dwell in a lot of different worlds comfortably, too. That's not a bad thing. amazing. Yeah. And that's amazing. And then they get to see the Judaism, that what Jewish is, is more expansive and more powerful. Right, right. And, you know, it's, it seems like a lot of the people who grow up feeling kind of burned and angry about their childhood religious experiences are ones that get told it's either this or it's that. Right? If you do this, you're good. You do that, you're bad. And getting to encounter the world and what a spiritual and religious identity can look like in a way that's more nuanced than that, I think is only a gift. So, you know, yay. Yes, and? I mean, in what ways can... I mean, first of all, it's the, the, the being willing to sort of enter into the, all of these small moments. You've got this beautiful, tiny person who's eating, and that's amazing, and like what, you know, like what, where is your mind, where is your heart? I mean, right now we're having a conversation, but, you know, normally, like, where is your mind, where is your heart when this is happening? You know, are you like... You know, taking, taking, feeding the kid is so boring, which, like, a lot of childcare is boring, you know, and little people who don't talk back to you and you're not having, you would like to have an adult conversation. I, I did not mean to put that on you. <laughs> you know, and to what degree can it be an opportunity to sort of quiet down and connect and encounter and be fully doing that one thing, you know? Have the one thing you're doing be sweeping up the peas from the floor and just do that and not any other thing. Um, the one thing you're doing is wiping up poopy butt, you know, and do that and not any other thing. Um, and sometimes as parents, we do multiple things at once because that's just what needs to happen. And so how can we have our, you know, even bring our an essential of intentionality to that? In what ways can we let the bedtime rituals be a form of prayer for us? Um, you know, that's some of it. And some of it is like in the hard moments, in the crazy-making moments, how do we try to be fully present with our, you know, like even just name our feelings. Like instead of feeling angry that a small person just smacked us in the face and they don't know any better, but the, you know, you've got all these sort of anger hormones start running in through your body and it's a biological reaction. Like how do you just name, like I'm feeling, or like 
oh, just like put on your pants, we need to go. Whatever it is, like, you know, I'm feeling frustrated, I'm feeling angry, as opposed to shoving it in the corner and assuming that if you kind of do this and you're like, yeah, everything's fine, it's like then the anger comes and, you know, so how, do we, how do we grapple with the places um, that aren't moving smoothly and how do we deal with that in the moment? I mean, there's not one answer. In addition to the, the positivity and the joy and amazement, some, some two more challenging places I go to when it's really challenging. Uh, one is sort of solidarity with people throughout history who are, and currently who are exactly in that moment. Mm -hmm. And that sort of spiritual connection of, of feeling like, oh my goodness, billions of people have felt what I'm feeling right now and feeling connected to them at that moment. <laughs> Sometimes it gets me somewhat. And the other is, <clears throat> I think that um, a lot of people are struggling to give in, in the world. You know, they work a job where they don't feel like they're giving. They find little time to give. And in that moment, while parenting is definitely a lot of receiving, this, this powerful feeling is sometimes whole of like, this is my avoda. This is my service. Like, I'm actually giving of myself through this right now. And what, like, what a bracha, what a blessing to be able to to give of myself. Um, so both of those are a little bit like sacrifice negative, but sometimes those are helpful for me. It's Bell Hooks, who's a feminist theorist, uh, defines love as the act of extending oneself for the spiritual growth of another. And it's like, so that is not a warm, fuzzy, touchy-feely thing. That is not, you know, I, I feel the warm, fuzzy, touchy-feely kind of heart, eyes, cartoon character feeling sometimes, but that's not what she's describing, right? It's this thing pushing yourself <laughs> to the limit, that moment when the patience is all grown out, all used up and you have to grow more. Like that, doing that, pushing yourself, growing yourself so that somebody else can feel seen, nourished, cared for, served in powerful ways, and in those moments when you feel kind of like most at the edge of your ability to, to do any, you know, to, to whatever the next thing is, to be able to just let that flicker of like the ways that you're extending yourself so that someone else can grow, I mean, that also opens a door. And there are ways that we can, you know, sort of sanctify, and you, you have this one line from Psalms that's an intention when you're doing this thing, like that's also part of it too. Yeah. Kind of see if someone had uh, a comment afterwards too, because um, I like to I like to expand my parenting toolbox. But um, I have a, a ten-year-old boy, and um, he's a pretty sensitive child. And uh, we were um, at Costco getting some bulk items, and he's he's 
that's, I mean, you, you did the work, right? You, you, you uh, went and you found the vow. You, the kid just wanted to be seen. I think we all want to be seen, right? I mean, I get home from work sometimes, and all I want from my partner is for him to, like, pat me on the head and say, like, you were really brave today, or you worked hard, or I see you're tired, or whatever it is, right? Uh, we all want that, and, and kids need that all the more from us. And you, you, went, uh, you went looking. You said, you know, Ayeka, right? Where are you? That's what God asked uh, uh, Adam and Eve in the, in the Garden of Eden, and that's... That's what we need to be asking our children, right? Ayeka, where are you? And, and he said, Hineni, like, here I am. Here's what I need. Profound. Any other thoughts, questions? Yeah. Seeing what is instead of what you think is supposed to be happening. Welcome here all the way from Chicago. I want to thank Rabbi Daniel Bittenberg. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.